Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're excited to welcome Mike Calicrate, a farmer rancher, business entrepreneur, and family farm advocate. Mike's knowledge, experience, and sheer will to make things happen will help you connect the dots in the world of farming, ranching, processing, ag tech, and ag markets. He and Monty have a robust conversation that will have your gears turning and probably have you asking, do these guys ever sleep? It's a great conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm blessed to be joined by Mike Calicrate. Welcome, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Monty? I'm doing great. Mike is a a farmer, rancher, cattleman that uh, when he sees a problem, he solves it. And uh, he is not afraid of solving problems. That's what we like here. You know, that's our whole mantra at Ag Solutions Network. And I wanted Mike to come on here today and talking about, you know, ag technology and partnerships that can help further advance regenerative agriculture practices to where we can get regenerative agriculture to be the conventional practice. And uh, Mike has certainly been a pioneer in this area. And I'm just going to stop right now and and let him tell you a story. But I I always have a joke, Mike, I got to got to run this by you. Do you know how many cowboys it takes to change a light bulb? No. (laughs) Change? Why change? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Just this is certainly not. Dark. It's not. <laughs> it's certainly not. Mike's. Uh, Mike is not afraid of change. So, um, yeah, start us out with, uh, yeah, your family farm ranch experience and, and kind of where that's grown to today. Sure. I, I uh, really got into agriculture through college. Uh, I mean, serious agriculture. I was raised in Evergreen, Colorado on five acres with seven other brothers and sisters and my dad was uh, grew up on a farm and and did everything on five acres you can do so we were in 4-h we had livestock and all that well i really wanted to be a a, a bull rider <clears throat> and so i i decided i was going to ride bulls when i was in my last year a couple years of high school mike i'm, and, I'm sorry to stop you right there but i think that just shot your credibility right but at i the, think i team. but i've worked hard to recover Monty. Oh, okay. I, it, it's taken me some time but i you know, I still have dreams about getting to the rodeo and somebody entered me and I don't have my stuff. I don't have my bull rope and I'm just running around frantically trying to borrow spurs and bull rope and all that stuff. I mean, it's weird. I still, I think I got over that dream, but I, it, but it, it plagued me forever. But, but the deal was I, I wanted to be a bull rider. And, and so I, I uh, went to college on, on a rodeo scholarship. And I met my wife at Lamar Community College in, in Southeast Colorado. And uh, her folks farmed in St. Francis, farmed and ranched in St. Francis, Kansas. And so we went back there after college. I, I got out of CSU in 1975 with an animal science degree. And I tell people, don't confuse that with animal husbandry. I got the full industrial agriculture education at Colorado State University. And, and so I went back to St. Francis and there really wasn't room on our, on the home place for me to, to do, uh, to, to make a living, uh, uh, only, only in agriculture. So I, I built a feedlot uh, with some other shareholders and there were 10 of us that, that went together and, and built a 14,000 head feedlot. And I operated that, uh, for about eight years. And then I went over to the home place, uh, and, and purchased my in-laws place, um, and we built a feedlot on there that I really was the result of years of practice and and looking at other places. And really, I think it's one of the nicest operations around. And so that that held twelve thousand cattle. But I but I realized in about in about 1990, after you know twelve years of being in the cattle feeding business, that man, this this is not a good business. I mean the big meat packers had continually consolidated and, and put out the small guys and 
on and when I started in 1978, a packer typically on a Monday morning would sleep in his car outside the gate of our feedlot, hoping to get the first shot at our show list. And I could sell to as many as 20, you know, packers in the region. And, you know, we had pepper packlet, backpack, alpha, beta, sterling pack. We had all kinds of packers in Nebraska and eastern on, on further east in, in Kansas. We had Booker pack, Clovis pack. We had, we had all these small regional kind of packers that we could sell to. And, and back then, uh, a really key number to, to remember, back then, the producer of the, of the cattle, uh, when they were finished and ready to go to the meat packer, we received from 65 to 70 percent of what the consumer spent for the beef at the retail meat counter. And, and that compares to today, after all those 20 packers are essentially gone, uh, and IBP, JBS, now IBP Tyson, JBS, Cargill, and Marfrig control 85 percent of the market, Today we're getting 44%, and that's up from 34%. You know, not long ago, and as low as 27% during May 2021, uh, during COVID, when they were really price gouging the consumer big time, and also paying less to cattle producers. I mean, out of control, just total, huge antitrust violations of, you know, manipulating the market. So, so back in about 1990, I realized that. I was playing in a fool's game I, and I had to do something different. And, but I, you know, I just fought my way along just like every other cattle feeder. And, and, and You're by just 90, to get bigger, you know, yeah, it's supposed to get bigger. Oh, absolutely. That way, that, that way, you get the, that the way problem. You can, it just, it just uh, makes the, the stupidity with zeros. Right. <laughs> right. But the deal is it, the only way you could get bigger without just digging a bigger hole was to have a sweetheart deal with a meat packer. And that's how the big got bigger is they did it through preference and and through at the expense of their neighbor, their, their smaller independent feedlot people. Uh, the big guys got bigger. So all the while we were losing, you know, today 80 some thousand farmer feeders and small feedlots, the 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 cactuses of the world, the, you know, the 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 the, the other big you know feedlots that that had sweetheart deals. They just added pens on. They just kept building on and building on and buying up some of the others that were going broke. But they did it by receiving preference, by getting a sweetheart deals. And, and it, gave the, it gave the packer then the tool that they needed to depress the price on the livestock they purchased, which is how they made a lot more money. But the problem is they, they were passing a lot of that money on to an even more powerful retailer. Like today, you've got Kroger, you got Walmart, you got Amazon with Whole Foods. We got we got big retailers today that are more powerful than the Packers, and 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 so a lot is a lot has changed. So it's a lot easier for the Packer to buy cattle cheaper than it is to sell meat higher to a very powerful buyer, and and so we went from sixty-five to seventy percent of the consumer dollar back to like you know, in the thirties and, and today it's, it's a little better at 44%, uh, but it's, it's far, far short of being what it has to be. If we're actually going to survive as farming and ranching operations and have the income to be sustainable and even more to be regenerative, to fix the, the problems that, that we've, that we've seen in agriculture as a result of, of chronically low income. And, and the loss of people from the land that, that grew up on it, that knew the land, uh, we have convinced most of them not to come back because it's just not a life that's worth living when you're having to work two or three jobs in town and still do what a normal person would be a full-time job doing on a farm or a ranch. And so in 96, we finally raised enough hell. And we finally got a, a, you know, we had a meeting in Amarillo, Texas, uh, with with some attorneys that that realized there was a problem because they they were they were coming out, you know, hunting and fishing and uh, into Oklahoma and Texas, and got to know some of the some of the cattle producers, and they said, whoa, there's a Packers and Stockyards Act that clearly states in 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 plain words that the big packers cannot do this. 
This is not fair. They cannot discriminate. They cannot show preference. In fact, that law says that if what a big packer does has even so much as an effect on competition, they can't do it. And so the Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921 was all about protecting markets and pr protecting farm gate income or ranch gate income, as it may be in the in, in with the cattle business. And, and but you know the the but the poli the politics the the people uh, in Washington they they didn't see it that way. They they really thought a global market was requiring big companies to do business and. And so, in fact, it was Dan Glickman himself that when I got blackballed by the Packers and at the end of 1998, I called him and said, hey, Dan, what am I going to do? I've got 14,000 cattle in a 12,000 head feedlot. Uh, you know, if you'd enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act, I wouldn't have this problem. Oh, well, you know, Mike, he said, uh, in this modern day of globalization, we need big meat packers that can do business globally. And, and so, uh, but he did at least call ConAgra. Uh, which is now JBS and Greeley. And he made them buy all my cattle and then I went empty. Well, that was a major, major uh, signal to other cattle feeders to keep their mouth shut. Uh, but those 10 guys that, that got together in Amarillo or actually were a result of about 150 people or so gathering in Amarillo, 10 of us decided we'd be plaintiffs in the lawsuit that these attorneys wanted to bring. And so that was called the Pickett case, and it worked its way through the courts, and it finally got to trial in 2004. Uh, and and we won that we won that lawsuit. Uh, and and so before we almost before we got out of town, I we got the word from from the court that the 1.28 billion dollars that the jury had awarded us. Uh, would be reversed and we would not get that that money. Uh, the judge reversed the jury verdict uh, and blocked any hope that we had of getting the injunctive relief. We didn't care about the money. We cared about getting injunctive relief and enforcement of these antitrust laws. And, 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 the, and so the judge basically, who was a Reagan appointee and obviously during the trial was in the pocket of Tyson, uh, and we, you know, we lost that. And and to add insult to injury, the judge uh, made us pay Tyson's court costs of $80,000. So we won the case and ended up paying Tyson's court costs for $80,000. And then, of course, the, the appeals court sided with the judge because they were also a Reagan appointees, D-reg sort of mentality, globalist judges. And and then we went on to the Supreme Court where they simply refused to hear it in favor of hearing the Anna Nicole Smith family feud case. And so the most important case in agriculture history in this country, the cattleman's case for fair markets, you know, got thrown away and and basically a huge, huge green flashing light was lit for the Packers to rape, pillage and plunder all they wanted. There would be no law enforcement. You guys just do anything you want to do because you know, in this modern day of non-enforcement of antitrust laws, doesn't the consumer win? Doesn't the consumer, because of all this efficiency and economies of scale, isn't the consumer just going to get a better deal? And that'll offset any damage at all to any cattle producers that are out there. And that's that was their mentality. And and so I, you know, after that, and after looking at an empty feedlot, literally, I mean, not one head of cattle in it, 15 people went to town without jobs. And, and one of the major buyers of, of the commodities in our area, my feedlot, was no longer buying corn and hay and whatever else we fed our livestock. And, and so, you know, when you when you look at that empty feedlot every day, you start thinking, well, wait a minute, I, I really do want to be in the cattle business. But doggone it, it looks like I'm going to have to get in the meat business because I can't sell my cattle. And that's that's when we started Ranch Foods Direct in 2000. Uh, and so we started shipping cattle to Colorado Springs to a custom plant, a GNC packing company, and they custom killed for us. We sold the meat and we just grew into a plant of our own in, in Colorado Springs. It was strictly a break plant. It wasn't slaughter, but we were then slaughtering at St. Francis right on site at our cattle operation. And we'd already gone, you know, we'd already decided we were going to go multi-species and really diversify the operation. So we, we'd already started raising pigs 
and and with along with our cattle and and we have chickens that produce eggs and you know we have the full composting operation where we compost the slaughter waste right on site we even make bone char we cook the bones and 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 make a product called bone char which is equal parts uh, uh carbon uh calcium and phosphorus and that goes right into our compost and into our fertilizer program for our pastures and our cropland uh but but I'll tell you, Monty, it, it's really, really been a struggle. It's really hard. And and every little niche that people like me and Greg Gunthorpe and Will Harris and everything we come up with, I don't care what it is, the big guys steal it. And they don't do anything but change the label on their commodity product, their industrially produced commodity product. And meanwhile, you know, USDA, who's supposed to be, you know, in charge of truthful labeling and, you know, is aiding and, same, and abetting? They're aiding absolutely. They're they're saying, "Hey, it's okay. You can do it. You can put anything you want on this on this label." And so, you know, I I just think about all the things we've done to differentiate ourselves from no hormones, no antibiotics, to to you know, humanely raised to you know, and now regenerative. The big guys have stolen every single term, and that's it's all over their stuff. And they've absolutely done nothing to change the way it's produced. And, and so, you know, as hard as we've worked to try to build this alternative pathway to the consumer, we, we're constantly under attack. I mean, I can't go into a restaurant and, and, and try to sell our ground beef or, or, or any of our meats without Cisco just coming in and predatory pricing and, and paying kickbacks to knock us out. I mean, the market, there is no market. There is no market. It's, it's, it's a managed price. It's, it's, just, it's, it, it's a handful of companies now, four Big Mac, big meat packers, a couple of big food service companies like Cisco and U.S. Foods. Uh, we, we've just got no competition. And, and so we're all being, being exploited uh, from the producer to the worker to the consumer. I mean, the, the environment is, we're externalizing costs onto the environment. Uh, we're losing rural communities. It, it's just been awful what's happened. And, and there's so darn few of us out there that are actually willing to confront the power, the market power of these big corporations that it's just really, really hard to win. You know, we, we start out with new organizations uh, to try to, confront or, or or address some of the problems politically and invariably they they get compromised and invariably they get crossways with each other <clears throat> we simply can't get a, a a strong enough voice in washington to actually do much about it but uh, you know when covid first hit and biden <clears throat> did the executive order that talked about building local regional food systems and you know increasing income at the farm and ranch gate rebuilding rural america we were excited for a minute but they've done nothing absolutely zero to help us but what it did do is it encouraged a few folks to you know go out and build a, a small slaughter facility and you know and they're they're either out of business now or hanging on by the skin of their teeth i mean it's just it's just impossible and to to run a plant without a market. So the thing that that really differentiates me, though, uh, with Ranch Foods Direct and Calicrate Cattle Company, is I've got a couple of retail stores, and and so I can sell directly to the consumer, and that is honestly the key to making it work. If you try to sell through the existing system in any way, through any of the existing corporate structure that's there, you will not you will not earn enough income to pay the bills to run a farm or a ranch in a sustainable or a regenerative way. And, and I just, it was really interesting. A few years ago, I was in Burlington, Colorado at the no-till on the plains conference. And I mean, all your friends are there. I mean, guys that really care about their land and, and are really wanting to do the right thing in crop production and farming practices. And there are like, five executives from from uh, General Mills at the conference and you know what they're up to they're wanting to meet some of these regenerative sort of rancher and farmer guys 
particularly farmers. And, and they, of course, they usually come in and they sponsor the meeting or pay for the, you know, the break, give you some donuts and coffee or whatever. That's and, all it but, takes to hook a farmer, you know, get exactly. us food and we'll listen. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and so what they did is they, they got, they got to organize a session where the, the General Mills executives came in and each one of them had their own table. So they were, there were like, you know, five round tables in the room. And there was a General Mills executive at each one of those round tables. And, and it was really brilliant the way they, the way they structured it because it, you were, it was very, very unlikely that they were gonna get any pushback or that any complaints would be aired to the entire group. It would be confined to a table. And, 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 you know, they know what they're doing. They, they know how to manage a crowd. And, and, but, but what happened is the, the one executive at my table, uh, there just happened to be a guy next to me that was, that was sure willing to, to say what he thought. And, and we simply said to that executive, look, if you want to actually claim regenerative on your labels, if you actually want to support regenerative farming practices where we really care about stewardship instead of extraction. And what you need to do is raise the price on the grain that you're purchasing. And I said, hey, Monday, let's get started. On Monday, I want General Mills to announce that they're gonna raise the price of oats by a dollar. And he just looked at me like I was completely crazy. And, and I said, no, I'm serious. You raised and just a, just a, just a, you know, a good faith gesture, raise the price of oats on Monday, a dollar and tell them it's because you, because farmers need to make more so they can do a better job of, you know, preserving our food supply and our environment and all of that. And the guy just said, no way that's, that's not going to happen. And, and, you know, but guess who, uh, guess who claims the word regenerative on their labels? General Mills. General Mills goes out and they buy Epic, which is, you know, broth and jerky and whatever. They pay a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars for a label. I mean, the product is just pretty average. It wasn't nothing special, uh, but they give a hundred million dollars for that label, basically, that's all they really got. And at the same time, they give Gabe Brown and Ray and, and Alan and, and the guys that are really legitimate, I mean, really out there gonna make a difference, they give them 100,000. And, and, and so that's just kind of where it's at. And, and, and the big companies know they don't have to change. There's nobody gonna make them change. They, they essentially own the courts. Uh, you know, it seems like, you know, I was really, optimistic in the in the Obama when Obama was was president in that administration did the the hearings around the country with Secretary Vilsack and the Justice Department and and my uh, my uh, attorney general from Colorado Phil Weiser was on that uh, antitrust uh, effort he apologizes to me still today for nothing coming of those hearings where it was very clear we needed some antitrust law enforcement and we needed some government agencies to really work together to get it done, but nothing ever happened. But, but Lena Kahn, who is now the, the lead uh, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, wrote the article, Obama's Game of Chicken. And wow, that was a, an amazing article. And it's still out there. You can look it up and read it. But this is this is the person, the lady that is now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. So there are there is hope, there is some hope, but my gosh, time flies, and and you know we need to get we need to get busy, and we just continue to lose, lose, lose. And and I understand there's there's people out there supporting these regenerative practices that that claim well we can just get it done so much cheaper that we can you know we can survive we can survive out here but the problem is that doesn't put a lot more new bodies out on those farms and ranches you know you're still surviving when you're 65 years old or 70 years old and you've never uh you've never arranged for your your replacement uh you know and and so i i just think we can't we just can't 
get away from the fact that we've got to increase farm and ranch gate income to consider that that farmers union uh you know the the farm share of the of the food dollar is 14.2 cents or something like that well talking about solutions we at, at ranch foods direct we've got a, a facility here we call the peak to plains food hub and it's 22,000 square feet it's got a full meat processing uh uh capacity within the building that you know we 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 house the mountain pie company that makes these really wonderful savory meat pies uh, we house the uh southern colorado uh, virtual farmers market which started up during covid as a as a contact free curbside delivery of of local foods and 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 we also provide a drop off for a hava farms which is out at Peyton, Colorado, and they've got one of the best CSAs I've ever seen. So every Friday, they've got two or 300 people that come by and pick up their CSA share. Well, at the same time, they're coming into our retail store that, you know, that's part of the facility here. It's one of two that we have. And, and so we're really starting to build some, some local capacity to feed ourselves. And, and, and uh, what was really cool, though, about the Southern Colorado Virtual Farmers Market, remember, the farmers union is saying the, the typical farmers getting 14.2 cents out of the food dollar. Well, Southern Colorado virtual farmers market that's operated by Katie Bell Miller is returning 85% of what consumers spend for food back to those farms. That is amazing. And at the same time, we've got people saying, yeah, but that's just not an efficient system. And and it just it just shows if it wasn't what, efficient, people wouldn't buy it. Well, well, the thing is, it just shows what a big fat lie it all is. You know, we've built this monopoly controlled food system because we were claiming efficiency and economies of scale. And really the only thing efficient about it is their ability to pick your pocket and 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 cheat you and, and to sell you something something less for more. That, that's what it's all about. I mean, but, you know, when you've got your university professors like Stephen Kuntz at Colorado State University and and uh, Schroeder and Minert and, you know, all those those mouthpieces for big agribusiness out there telling you about how much it's going to hurt to break up the big packers, you know, that that's that's, you know, that's a loss of our land grant system uh, that is, that is so fundamental to keeping family farmers on the on the land. And they probably have an endowed chair from uh, JBS or. Well, at Colorado <laughs> State University, my alma mater, they, they've got a JBS building. They've got a Neutrina building. They've, they've got a, I mean, got, come on, uh, a Nutrient, a Nutrient. I'm, I, 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 let me correct that. They've got a Nutrient uh, building. I mean, these are the, these are the worst of the worst companies that CSU is taking money from and they control the curriculum and so i don't look to the land-grant university like a csu or a kansas state university or an osu or or any of them i don't look to those universities for any solutions right as far as family farm agriculture or any kind of regenerative approach and, and i'm just sickened by the amount of money that, that usda just passed out in the climate smart grant stuff that just almost every one of those projects has a major corporation that's hurting us right now as a partner. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture, along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome. We provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. Okay, that is a great overview of, of how the policies and where we're at today and, and what, what's going on there. And, you know, as a farmer and beef producer myself, I thank you for the fight that you're doing on our behalf. You know, I'm all direct to consumer because it's not an option to do it any other way, you know, especially in grass-fed. There's zero way I can compete in, in, a, uh, in that market. So we go direct to consumer in order to offset our inefficiencies, essentially, to pay for our, mm -hmm. our cattle habit. 
but I want to back up just a little bit. I want to help help us backfill your story from from the farmer side. You know, you said, "Hey, uh, we went to um, working with a local processor, and now today that's a real problem to find one, right?" Uh, but you eventually got to uh, kill and chill on the ranch and cut and pack in Colorado Springs, if I understand it correctly. Um, that's right. You had some iterations of kill and chill. You did something really cool. I called you up and I said, Hey, I hear you're the guy that does the mobile kill. That sounds really cool. We should do that. And you said, Oh, no way, Jose. Mike, <laughs> walk, walk through a little bit of the, of your uh, experience with that, the, 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 you know, how you're getting that animal to the consumer. So yeah, the, the kill and chill cut and pack the grocery stores and, and any sort of, you know, direct consumer activities, how that, how that process works for Calicrate beef and, and ranch foods direct. Yeah. Well, so Monty, we started out with a mobile slaughter unit, what, 10, nine or 10 years ago. And, and it was a godsend. I mean, it was, it was great. It was a 60 foot trailer that was just so capable and, and you could do, you could do an animal every 20 minutes in it. And, we had a capacity, a cooler capacity of about 15 heads. So you were emptying it out every, you know, every day, basically into a, a truck, then that would transport the carcasses into Colorado Springs for cutting. But we tried it as a true mobile unit once. Uh, we we drove it up to Denver and into Colorado Springs, and we slaughtered some animals on site. And And I mean, the whole list of things that go wrong is pretty long. So you're on your way up to the ranch, and he calls you up. The guy calls you up. You know, you're halfway there with your crew. And he calls you up, and he says, well, you know, we hadn't used those corrals for a few years. And we put the cows in or the cattle in them, and damn, they're all they all got out and we we got to go gather them up and it's going to be tomorrow at the earliest and then we got to rebuild some corrals we're going to go buy some cattle panels and we're going to line the corrals with those that might be quicker and better and 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 so you get there and 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 the story might have been that the hired man just didn't show up that day and i mean oh and it rained and the road's too muddy to get in and 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 of course, you know, you got to spend the night. So your crew is sleeping in a really bad motel with really bad food, and and they and they want to be home. Uh, so that that's just a very small sampling of all the things that go wrong with mo with a mobile, totally mobile unit. And and so, what if you just park it, and and really have a good corral system? It can be portable. It can be like the one that the the bull riders use, right? You know, remember the bull riding. Uh, that's that's a good strong set of corrals, and and you know humane practices or humane treatment of animals does require that you have a facility that cattle work well in, and that they can't just jump out of and whatever. So we put together a really great corral system uh, with a kill box, and we parked that mobile slaughter unit. Just parked it. We plugged it in. We had water, and we had you know wastewater handling right there. And, and a lot of what led to that was Temple Grandin is a longtime friend. And, and, and we were talking about the, the mobile approach. And, and we both agreed that what would be better is a docking station to where you, you park it. You know, it's a big you unit. The, the water hookup, the electric hookup, the waste is the big, big thing. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and boy, would that ever make the most sense at a feedlot? Right. So farmer feeder. And have a rail come out to where you could have a second reefer truck backed up to the kill truck. And Absolutely. Then, then the sides go into a separate truck and on the way versus versus having the sides in the back of the mobile unit. That's a waste of space. Yeah, well, the, well what happens is the, 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 the cooling section in the mobile unit becomes your drip cooler. And, and so as they get cold the next morning, the first thing you do is you transfer from that drip cooler in the mobile unit into your, into your transport truck. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we did. It and, and it might take us three days to fill the semi rail trailer because it, it would haul forty five cattle and we could do about fifteen a day, mm -hmm. and and so that that worked. Uh, but the problem with that mobile unit was the rails weren't high enough, and so oh. if you were going to be doing really big cattle or cows and bulls, where there's a very big opportunity to do cows and bulls, and and you always want to be able to to slaughter your, your cull animals, especially if you're killing fat cattle, because now we've got some lean to mix with the fat and we improve our yields a lot. That's where you really gain some efficiency if you can not throw any fat away. And, and so uh, what we did is, is we sold the mobile unit after making sure it worked and we loved it. 
uh, but it, but because that rail wasn't high enough and because we thought we needed a little bit bigger space, uh, we sold that mobile unit to uh, the Farmers Union in Montana, who partnered with the University of Montana at Haver to, to, to put in a, t a curriculum to teach slaughter and butchering. And so that's where it is right now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's up there in Montana doing a great, some great work. And, and what we did then is, is we built a purpose-built facility inside a building uh, which did previously house the mobile solder unit so we could operate more on a year-round all-weather basis. And so when we pulled the mobile solder unit out, we just threw up the rails and, and man, we had, a, we had a really nice setup. And then we've added on a carcass cooler that'll, that'll hold 30 cattle a day's kill. And then it's got 40, room for 40 cattle in the finish cooler. And then we load our transport trailers out of that. Uh, and since we've now not quite completed yet, but we've built a cut room to where we can start processing some animals at St. Francis. So maybe we kill two or three days a week and then ship carcasses to our springs and keep some carcasses there to further process with our kill crew doing the cutting on those for the local people. We about half the business of our slaughter unit and, and Ranch Foods Direct is for other people not Calicrate Cattle Company. And so, you know, I, my whole reason to get out of bed every morning is to increase income at the farm and ranch gate. So anybody that we can help within a reasonable distance, we wanna, we wanna provide a slaughter and, and cutting uh, service for them. And, and so right now we, we cut for about 45 different customers. And, and then we'll, we'll uh, have their product here. They can pick it up. If it goes back to St. Francis, we just backhaul it on the truck when we go get more carcasses. But we work very hard to to provide opportunity for as many people as we can. But what we'd really like to see happen is this model replicated around the country, big time, and 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 connect it to a serious place within a population center where you've got the butcher shop, the baker, the cheesemaker, the brewer, the the distiller. I mean, all of these really cool companies that have never been able to really own their own land. Uh, they're, they're, they're always out there leasing. And you know what happened during COVID, the, the, the rent collectors really gouged uh, the renters or, or the small businessmen. And so what if we build this sort of marketplace that contains all of these independent businesses and they sell direct to the consumer in a really high energy sort of public market environment. And at the same time, sell out the back all the wholesale that they can you know to other to restaurants to to other users on a wholesale basis and and so you've got a cheesemaker that's got a full retail meat counter you got a butcher that's got a full retail market uh counter and it, and in the back they're cutting carcasses for other people they're they're you know restaurants are picking up or they're delivering so that that's that's what we got to tie together and we talk about to be successful, we have to begin with the end in mind. And you talked about, you sell direct. Well, when you sell direct, at least in the cattle side, you're picking up about an extra $1,500 a head in income, depending on what you're paying for processing and, and so forth. But it's about $1,500 a head. Right now, our customers that are killing cattle with us and, and selling meat direct are getting about $250 a pound for a live animal, as compared to $1.50 right now in the commodity market. So they're getting a, an extra dollar, which is huge. That's huge. But the trouble is most people don't have enough family and friends to sell all their animals to. And, and there's so much noise out there in the internet, you know, about people wanting to sell on, on the internet or, or whatever, that consumers can't figure out what's real. And, and so you've got a lot of companies out there right now that are just buying boxed beef from big packers, cutting it up and, you know, trying to look like they're the farmer or they're the rancher and that's just really messing messing things up. So you but this public market sort of concept that I'm talking about that that's actually privately owned by the occupants by the businesses that are located within it I think addresses the the challenge of of reaching directly out to a consumer and doing business directly but it also addresses the problem with uh, aggressive rent collectors uh, that never let that tenant ever have equity 
And, and so we want, it's kind of like owning a home. What's the difference in owning a home and paying rent? Well, someday when, you, you know, you, you, when you get old, you're going to have some equity in your home, you know, and, and the same is true in a business when you're ready to retire, you know, go ahead and finance it, you know, provide a mortgage, carry the mortgage for your employees to buy it from you or your kids to take it over or whatever. We need to get that started so that we can keep more dollars in the community. And I think it's a great way to have artisans to be able to be their own business owner again, instead of being the, the bread maker in the corner of the grocery store, you know, and, yeah. and the, and the meat guy at the meat counter getting paid a little more in minimum wage at the grocery store, you know, so essentially you're looking at a, a group of the artisans within there, you know, cheesemongers and, and, you know, even people are doing cured meats and all that. I mean, it's a fantastic idea and they all own it together. The ownership component is, is a real, real key there. And, and you think about ring people and, and, and people aren't going to, today's people aren't just want to go for a loaf of bread and then drive somewhere else to go get their cheese and then drive somewhere else to, you know, exactly. we got, we're such a driving oriented. Um, it's not Europe where you walk down the street and you got all these things right here. You're just essentially creating a little main street in suburbia uh, to go and get all of your essential fresh food. You know, there was, there was a woman that went to uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's been a few years ago. And, yes, and New Boco. It, yeah. And, and you, so you, yeah, downtown, so you, I've been there. I've been part of that startup community. That is cool that the community food hub they have there. So isn't that neat? And, and, and so I love that story because she came to town and she, she said to somebody, she was there on a business meeting or whatever. And she said to somebody, where does life happen around here? You know, where can you meet people? Where, where can you have a conversation? And they said, nowhere. And so she organized the Nubo Market. And, and she lives there, apparently. Uh, but that's what I want to see happen in, in communities of, all across the country. Urban centers, population centers, scale to size for whatever community it may be. But have all those things that we, that we, that we can support local production and, and good food without all the chemicals and the crap that makes you sick have it there in a high i mean have the band playing on certain nights it's the home of the farmer's market in the summer it just blows out you know into the parking lot with all this food from the region it's just it really just becomes a, com a, a community hub of energy and 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 that's what i want to that's what i want to see put out there so that people like a greg gunthorpe a will harris you know folks like yourself can have better access, more easy access to the to the end consumer. And now the consumer doesn't have to sort through and do all this research on brands that are that are not truthful. Uh, they can actually know their farmer, they can know their rancher, they can know their cheesemaker, and the kids can watch it be made. You know, when we first started in Colorado Springs, we we had a, a carcass cooler that held a hundred cattle, and we had a cut room off to the side but we added a retail space on. And between the retail space and the, and the carcass scooter was a, was a door with windows in it. And every day we had, to, we had to wash the nose prints off the windows, the hand and nose prints, because the kids just loved seeing those carcasses. And so we were given tours. We'd put the, their little hat and their coat on and take them back and they typically drag their parents along. And uh, parents were apprehensive. But the kids loved it. And now guess what? Those kids are working with Ranch Foods Direct as retail clerks, as, as meat cutters, as they're working within our operation. Many of those kids, and, and you know, they've gone to college. A couple of them have gone to open up their own meat markets in other places. We, I just love this. And, and it's all around food, you know, something we do, all of us do every day. And, and so I, I want to see that replicated around the country. And we're going to build the model. We're going to build it. We're struggling a little bit. We were gonna, we were thinking we were gonna put it up just north of Colorado Springs, and 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 there, the pieces just didn't come together to to really make it work. Along with increased interest rates and and other other uh, issues with what could be a recession coming on, uh, we we decided to sort of regroup. But but we're really still very excited about the possibility of putting together these these uh, central sort of food markets. Uh, as we've described. 
I, I think that's a interesting venture. You're really an accelerator, uh, you know, in tech speak, you're being an accelerator for local food and right. providing that uh, opportunity for them to reach a wider audience. So the 45 or so ranchers that work with you, um, are they selling meat to you? You're buying it from uh, wholesale or are you private labeling for them on their behalf? Uh, what are those? What, how does that work for you, Mike? We are private labeling for them. Okay. We only sell in my market, uh, in my retail spaces, the two that we have, we only sell Calicrate beef. And But the guys that we custom slaughter for are selling to their customers, the people that, that they know, uh, and all of that is private labeled. And, and we walk them through the whole process of, of getting a label, designing a label, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that, that they're doing it right so that they're legal under USDA inspection. Now, are you, can I ask, what, how much are you raising today for your own, and is everything direct, direct sales now? So I imagine it's, you know, not, not what you, the size that you were before, because that's a lot of beef to sell. Well, I, yeah, I had a, I had a 12,000 head. I have a 12,000 head feedlot still do. Oh, okay. it's got third. It's got 1300 head in it. Perfect. You got plenty and, of and, <laughs> and, and so what I, what we do, uh, if, if all the just, rest is if, for your cattle to bring it into, to the slaughter plant, right? Well, the, the, oh. and, and we've got a heifer development opportunity, depending okay. on what's going on. We can, we can buy heifers and breed them to the Wagyu bulls that we, that we, we have an Angus Wagyu cross that we, that we like a lot. We've been doing that about 10 years. And, and so if we can do a heifer development program within that facility, we can also bring our cows in if we run out of grass. So we're running enough cattle that we can really impact the land. But the problem is what if it doesn't rain? Now that you've got all these cattle, you know, and you wanna, you wanna do your grass fed stuff, but if it doesn't rain, what are you gonna do? Well, Western if you had, it, known for that, by the way, lately, well, 10 out of the last 12 years, I mean, it's been a wreck. Uh, but, but the deal is we, we bring our cows in if we have to, and we feed them a cow ration mm -hmm. and, you know, and then the calves get their calves are a lot easier to wean because, you know, they've been eating with their mamas out of the bunk. And so when it's time to wean them, and that's what happened this year, we just sort of walk the cows out and leave the calves and, you know, there's a little fussing, but not much. And, you know, you greatly reduce any sickness that, that might occur. Uh, so we've got this really beautiful facility for cattle, but it's just, we're, we aren't utilizing it. Like, you know, the big guys uh, would think you'd got to stuff the pins full. Uh, and, and we just don't believe that's, that's the way to go. Uh, so, and then of course we took about 1200 head of that capacity and turned it into pig pens. And, and, and these are outdoor pigs. Uh, they got good shelter, but they just have a blast, you know, running around. And, and uh, it's, it's and it, honestly, Monty, if you, if you want to make money, uh, raise pigs uh, and sell pork. Uh, you can't make any money on hogs if you're selling to the big integrators. Of course, you know that. I mean, eight cent hogs in 98 wiped out all the family farmers. You know, the hog, the hog business that, was the mortgage lifter remember that when we considered pigs the mortgage lifter well kids grow up with hogs they 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 want to raise hogs and and then we steal their pigs from them when they when they get a little older and uh and they lose the farm and and that's just not right but if you're if you're selling pork pigs are a money maker i mean a sow will produce six thousand dollars worth of pigs a year uh you know at a buck a pound for for that 300 pound hog that, that's that's way better than a cow so so let's give the opportunity to people to be able to access the processing the packaging the private labeling that they need to be able to sell but also let's build these markets to where we can we can really support local regional agriculture and let's and let's really get aggressive with usda to fund it to provide interest-free you know loans to provide grant money, whatever it takes, because it is, it is so beneficial to both producer and consumer that, that we, you know, it, it makes no sense to give these big corporations so much of this, you know, grant money. So you talked to, uh, you led me right into the final thing I wanted to visit about in the rest of the time we got here is uh, you've talked about problems with uh, antitrust laws and, and lawsuits and just inaction today, currently. 
paint a picture of what it would ideally look like from a policy standpoint, in your opinion, going forward in the future. So this well, is involve crop insurances and regulations and USDA inspector availability and a level playing field, you know, uh, truth and labeling, truth and country of origin. Um, I'll just kind of sit back here and uh, let you take it away. There's there's lots of things that need to happen. Yeah, I want to I want to see a farm bill that that favors food production rather than corn, soy, ethanol. Uh, all of these industrial products. I, I want to see a farm bill that that does not incentivize the production of hydrogenated hydrogenated vegetable oils. That's causing so many health problems across the country. I don't want a farm bill that that subsidizes and encourages the production of high fructose corn syrup. I mean, I want to see the, the food lobbyists kicked out of Washington. I want to see. I want to elect representatives in Washington in Congress that represent people instead of corporations. That's really where we got to start because we'll never get a fair farm bill uh, under the current uh, structure of, of politics uh, in, 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 in the country today. But I, I want to do everything we can to enforce antitrust laws that, that needs to be in the farm bill. We need to, we need country of origin labeling again and, and no exceptions. It needs to be all meat needs to be labeled by country of origin, not product of the USA, which is food fraud on its face. Uh, when we bring in meat from foreign countries, put it in a different wrapper or a different box and, pro and call it product of the USA, that's deceptive, misleading and fraudulent. That is now allowed with USDA and that has got to stop. And that's something Bill Sack can do tomorrow or today if he's got time. You do not need Congress to get that job done. You know, we, we passed uh, mandatory price supporting years ago, about the same time as Daschle and Johnson and the guys were in the Senate and really helping us get things done. But then during the rulemaking, they put in a confidentiality provision so that we wouldn't be able to find out about the sweetheart deals that has given the big meat packers those captive supplies that they've used to depress prices overall. Mandatory price reporting should be all cattle that are bought by the big packers. You know, somebody, a small packer that doesn't impact competition, not, not so important, but the big packers, we need to know exactly what everybody's getting paid. And, and, and stop this preference stuff. Actually, the most efficient feedlot is a farmer feeder, like Eric Nelson, Brett Kinsey, the guys that have the 3,000 head operations. You know how big the cattle operation is uh, at Eric Nelson's farm? It's whatever it takes to feed the corn and hay and silage that he produces. Well, that's perfect. Plus he raised some pretty you know stout kids that can help out. Well, that's labor that, that you, you know, they aren't living seven families in a trailer house like they do at Tyson. You know, these are kids that are on the farm. They're raising families of their own. Uh, all they need is a fair price for the livestock that they produce. And everything that farm grows goes through those livestock. But then what happens? The manure goes back on the land. Now that's regenerative. That's the ultimate of, in, in, in a regenerative practice. And, and so we need a farm bill that encouraged those kinds of operations, not multinational corporations, not subsidizing and, and giving free money to the Batista brothers at JBS, the, you know, the biggest criminals in the, in the food industry globally. I mean, we literally are giving JBS money. We are, why does the government, I want a farm bill that mandates that the federal government buys nothing from the big meat packers until they have first bought everything local regional operators have to sell, that they need to sell, and that's trim. You can't be in the cattle slaughter business unless you can sell ground beef. It, otherwise, you just end up with all this trim. And, and so the government, that's what they buy. They buy ground beef for school lunch programs, for all kinds of different institutional demand. The government buys that, but Hillary Cole, who works with this administration has not been able to figure, figure out how to buy from people like me yet. So JBS, Cargill, Marfrig, Tyson, they all have the advantage over me and all the rest of us smaller guys when it comes to selling something to the government. And the other thing they do 
is they want to buy it at a below break-even price. Well, that below break-even price is available to them when they're dealing with a JBS because they're buying everything below cost of production and they're importing seriously below cost of production product. And, you know, they're living seven families to a trailer house, shoulder to shoulder in a slaughterhouse, people dying, getting sick of COVID. I mean, they exploit, extract, and, and pillage and plunder. We can't do that. A, an independent operator living in St. Francis, Kansas, LaGrange, Indiana, Bluffton, Georgia, we can't, you know, rape and pillage in our own community and get away with it. And we shouldn't be able to be, to, we shouldn't be able to. So the government has to realize we need to make a profit. We need to be able to sell to the government uh, whatever they need. So whatever the government supports through, through Biden's, you know, uh, executive order, they should also follow up with actually, you know, putting some action to it and, and buying from that model that they have, that they have proposed as being the replacement for the failed system that, that happened during COVID. When this, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about Somalia right now this morning after hearing about the famine that's occurring there. Well, doggone it, we're, how far is the U.S. away from that? If we don't have farmers producing food here domestically, if we have to depend on the Batista brothers to feed us, it, you better have plenty of money because they don't, they're not benevolent and they're not gonna just feed you. We need to get back to where we have food security again. And that means family farmers and ranchers and, and, and local regional food systems. Well, at least in the pork industry, you have Smithfield that'll take care of you. Oh, of course the Chinese will be happy, happy to send <laughs> food to the US population to keep us from starving. But, but seriously, uh, you know, like Somalia, why don't we let those people feed themselves? Why do we have to protect big corporations that go in there and extract wealth and, and exploit those people? Why, the US the US actually funds you know, protection in the military. Look what we did to Central and South America with you know, Chiquita Banana, United Fruit, you know, Chevron, Exxon, all those folks that go down there and extract the wealth. Hell, we, we provide protection for them. They're too and big now to look who's headed north to the border. Those same people that, that we actually helped uh, put in the place they're in today of, of, of you know, famine and, and economic hardship. All oh, those are in, those are unrelated, Mike. <laughs> so um, time flew by, had a lot of fun. Anything I should have brought up or we should visit about before we uh, part ways here and, and we'll have a, maybe an extended version of this after, after the show show uh, where we can really let it all hang out. Well, well, Monty, I, I just think we got to connect with the consumer. You know, oftentimes, you know, our organiz the organizations we've typically traditionally been a part of has seen the consumer as the enemy. And, and I'm talking about the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. <laughs> you know, you need, you need to eat these hammers with the pink slime in it or you're just not very nice. You know, you need, to, you need to accept these cattle that have received all these performance enhancing drugs or, or you're just not very nice. I mean, no, let's give the consumer what they actually want don't lie about it and let's develop better connections to the consumer. Because when you get into cities, the, the number of homeless people are increasing. We need good sound economies based upon the wealth creation of agriculture to, to really help rebuild economies. But we've got to stop the constant bleeding, you know, in the extraction of that wealth off to Wall Street and, you know, foreign uh, money centers. Great points. I really appreciate everything you shared with us today, Mike. It was uh, a great conversation. Um, thank you for your leadership, you know, in, in what you've done, the things that you've been willing to try, uh, definitely an uphill battle your your entire career, really, in what you've done, uh, you know, pioneering new ways to, to do things, to keep value on the farm, in the community, feed people better meat and better produce, you know, better food. And everything that you're doing to represent all of us, because like you said, many producers can't speak for themselves because, you know, whether it's in beef or, you know, especially in poultry or pork, uh, you can't say certain things. Uh, there's contracts in place and, and you have to, you have to toe the line if you want to expect to pay, make the bank payments on your CAFO. So someone's out there at least speaking uh, on their behalf and they're silently thanking you. And unfortunately, you know, <laughs> you can't hear it, but, uh, 
no, thanks. Thanks for all you're doing and, and a way to envision a better food future, if you will. Well, thanks for this opportunity today, Monty. All right. You take care, Mike. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye. Wow. So much to unpack in that powerhouse conversation. But the exciting thing about the work that's being done to think differently about how we engage in all things from production to markets from beginning to end has got us completely reimagining livestock production from start to finish. I don't know, but you just might want to replay this one again. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers reimagine their system practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.